morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And I hope when you leave here today, you're just in utter awe and amazement. How did that guy preach 90 minutes on one verse? I'm about to show you. I'm about to show you what that looks like. Every thee, every thou. 20 minutes. Okay, so what we, 2 Corinthians 5, um, Paul says, look, you, in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has gone away. The new has come. All this is from God. This is his work of grace through faith, the work of Christ on your behalf. Now, you're not only reconciled, but he's given you the ministry of reconciliation and called you ambassadors. And then in verse 21, he says, he summarizes that, that reconciliation in one amazing verse that we call the great exchange. And I would tell you, if you're a believer, <laughs> the great exchange is the greatest thing that's ever happened to your life. So let's, let's, let's read. And I'm going to start um, at verse 20 and then just read 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we worship you, we adore you, we sing your praises for this wondrous verse. What an exchange. Lord, what an exchange. And my words won't do it justice. The depth of this is, of this one verse is something that I, I certainly can't expound fully by any means. The depths of it is the depths of grace for us. The height, the depth, the length, the width of the love of Christ for us. God, let us see your glory, the glory of what Christ has accomplished for us. That our hearts might soar and sing and rest in joyful worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Martin Luther, the reformer, really seemed to love this verse, and he called it, the happy exchange, or in the wondrous exchange. And he compared it, he said it was like a wedding where everything that belongs to the groom, all that he has is exchanged and goes to the bride. It's all hers now. And then everything that's the bride's goes to him. There's a oneness. There's a mutualness. And so Luther says, well, imagine a prostitute who has lived a wretched life. She's needy in every way. She really lacks all possessions whatsoever. She's living on the street. She's an absolute outcast. People see her and they cross on the other side of the street. They won't touch her. They don't even want to be close to her. They draw their children in and guard their face from her. And yet, there's a prince, the king's son, who's walking down the same street 
and decides to marry this woman. Suddenly, everything that was his is hers. When those royal nuptials are taken, suddenly she has been redeemed from all of her evil and supplying her with all good things. Gone from possessing nothing to possessing everything of her husband. That's a wee small picture of the wondrous ex exchange. Jesus felt that exchange. He felt it. Think about the garden just before the cross in Luke 22. This is what he said right before the cross. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. An angel appeared from heaven, strengthening him. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling. What's the cup? What is it that Jesus does not want to drink? And he is pleading with agony that his father would take it from him. Well, in a Jewish wedding, when a husband was to wed a bride, he would take a ceremonial cup and he would drink it. And suddenly what he's saying is everything that is hers is mine and mine is hers. And there you see Jesus in the garden drinking the cup, a symbolic symbol. I am taking all the sins of my people upon myself going to the cross and all of my righteousness is going to them. Everything that I have is going to their account. We are about to be made one. That's the great exchange. That's the happy exchange, the wondrous exchange. And so Paul picks up on that in 2 Corinthians 5, and he describes this exchange by saying, he became sin for you, which we just sang. And in him, you become the righteousness of God. In him, you become the righteousness of God. John Calvin said it like this, our sins are a heavy load, but they are laid on Christ by whom we are freed from that load. So we must understand the great cost of our salvation. Death was no game to Jesus. It brought him into the severest of torments for you and for me. This was his greatest torment, though. In the midst of experiencing this judgment and this suffering, there was no relief given to him by his Father in heaven. He was estranged. His body and soul were both under the deepest of torment. And this hell for Jesus was to be forsaken and exchanged, estranged from his Father in the midst of this suffering. God the Father had planned and was executing the very destruction of his eternal son. And at the same time, your salvation was accomplished. He became sin for you, and God crushed him. And then delivered his righteousness to you. 
So here's our main idea today is the imputed, which is a word which means like placed upon or gifted. The imputed, the gifted, the placed upon righteousness of Christ is the highest reason in the world to rejoice. It's your greatest possession. Now we want to just look at this one verse two ways. First, let's talk about him becoming sin. And then second, let's talk about you becoming righteous. Let's start with this. He became sin for you. Okay, look at your Bibles, verse 21, please. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Stop there. (laughs) Did Jesus become sinful? Did he become sinful? No. It means he took the guilt of our sins. He was your lamb, your lamb of God, your sin sacrifice. So the consequence of every sin in your life, every time that you have broken God's law in thought, word, and deed, the consequences of that he placed on his son. They were charged to him. So as our sacrifice, he became so identified with our sin that Paul says God made him to be sin, to be our sin. He was guilty with our guilt. And notice he says he was a sinless sacrifice. So, under the law, sacrifices required from the Jewish people could have no blemishes. And when they would take them so often, the lamb, the perfect, unblemished lamb, was given to the priest. And in the sacrifice, often the person offering would place his hands upon the lamb. And it was a ceremony saying, I am transferring my sins upon this unblemished white lamb. That's why it says Jesus was sinless. He was the unblemished lamb that our sins were placed upon. Jesus was seen by God as one free from sin and yet made sin. He was your sacrifice. For only the sinless one was free to bear the curse of sins for others. So when Jesus was on the cross, it was a giant billboard. When Jesus is hanging there on a cross, it was a billboard that said to everybody who was watching, this man, this great sinner is cursed by men and cursed by God because of the way to his sin. Let me explain this. When Christ went in front of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, he condemned Jesus to death, which teaches us our judgment has been imposed upon Jesus. Christ was condemned a sinner to die before a mortal man. So the whole world would see he was becoming sin for us on the cross. They saw it. He's a sinner. He's becoming sin for us. On the cross, he was identifying with my sins, with your sins. He was identified with criminals and sinners, taking upon himself the shame of my life. He was put under the condemnation that I and you earned. A billboard condemned by Pontius Pilate, by man, for his sin. But it wasn't just a billboard condemned by man. It was a billboard that he's condemned by God. Deuteronomy 21 says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. 
Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So when the crowd, the Jewish crowd, saw Jesus hung on a tree, there they would point and say, children, that man is so sinful, he's hanging on a tree because he's cursed by God. And so there he hung, a billboard to everybody. This man is so sinful, he's cursed by Pontius Pilate and by God himself. And the amazing thing is you see the great exchange even there, even there. For Barabbas, the guilty criminal who deserves such death, was set free. And the innocent Christ was condemned. You see that? Isn't that awesome? Even there, the innocent go free or go, gets condemned and the guilty is pardoned. The great exchange, the gospel, even shown in the death of Christ. So believer, you struggle with condemnation. You beat yourself up. You lash yourself. You feel like, oh, I should have done this. Or I can't believe I did that. You live with your head down. You feel guilty. Sometimes you have to be drugged to church because you feel so guilty. That's gospelless living. In many ways, you're saying, Jesus didn't do enough for me to lift my head. There remains now no condemnation for you. Jesus drank the full cup. And when the law has been satisfied and the penalty paid, you are free. Christ became sin. Your sin sacrifice for you. That's the first half of the great exchange. But there's a second. Second, you become righteousness in him. Verse 21. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Stop there. Do you see those words, in him? Union with Christ. Those joined to Christ by faith before God are in Him. You're in Him before God. He sees you, the Father sees you in the Son. You're in the Son. This is how God makes you righteous in His sight. You have union with Jesus. That's the reason He's called the groom. You're called the bride because there's oneness. That's the reason he's called the head and you're called the body because there's oneness. He's called the vine, you're called the branches because there's oneness. Your identity, who you are, is defined by those two words, in Christ. Now, because you're in Christ, the text says that we might become the righteousness of God. So just as Christ became so identified with your sins that Paul said God made him to be sin, you have become so identified with his righteousness that he says you have become the righteousness of God. That idea, we become, in the Greek word it means present tense. His righteousness continues. You are in a state of justification or righteousness because you are in Christ. Now, what do you mean by righteousness, Rusty? 
It means the righteous, obedient life of Jesus is yours. His perfectly righteous life is yours before God. Now, does that mean that God never sees my sin? Does that mean I can just go live as I want because I'm sinless now before God? Doesn't matter how I live? No, not at all. That on the other side is gospel-less living. <laughs> it means that Jesus' death is the grounds for God declaring you righteous in His sight and the only grounds. His righteousness is your grounds of acceptance with God. Paul first said, in Christ you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So for every believer, grace is not an excuse to live a sinful life. It's the ability and reason to know and please God as new creations filled with the ability of the Holy Spirit and motivated with deep love for what He's done for me. Paul David Tripp says it like this. The grace that adopts me into Christ's family is not a grace that says I'm okay. In fact, the Bible is clear that God extends His grace to me because I am everything but okay. As we enter God's family, we are in need of a radical personal change. God's acceptance is not a call to relax, but a call to work. The grace God extends to us is always a grace leading to change. His acceptance is not the end of His work. It is the beginning of His work in me. C.S. Lewis illustrates this. Any, you like C.S. Lewis? Silver Chair. Maybe you know this scene. Little Jill. Aslan. Jill is thirsty. She sees a running stream, but she's afraid to draw near to the stream because there's a great lion just lying beside the stream. He speaks to her and he says, Are you thirsty? Jill says, I'm dying of thirst. I'm so thirsty. Aslan says, Then drink. Well, will you go away for a little while while I do? Aslan just growls. Well, Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come and drink? Aslan, I make no promises. Well, I dare not come and drink. Aslan, if you don't come, you're going to die. Die of thirst. Oh, dear, says Jill. Coming closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. And Aslan says, there is no There is no other way to become righteous before God. There is no other stream of righteousness. There is no other stream that will cleanse you and satisfy your heart's desire. The imputed righteousness of Christ is the greatest reason in the world to rejoice. In Christ, you have a righteousness you did not earn and you cannot lose. There is no uncertainty at how God sees you. You are in Christ. It's your portion in life, and it's your portion in death. And you can never send it away. 
You can never send it away. It's not something that you have to keep through performance. Christ has kept it with his death and his resurrection. Nothing can separate you now from the love and the righteousness of Christ. The world rejoices in his possessions, all the good things that they have and we have. But the great joy of the believer's soul is that the great exchange has happened for me. God has healed my greatest need. Jesus has become sin for me, and I, by faith alone, through his grace alone, have become, on my best day and my worst day, righteousness in his sight. And all God's people said, let's pray. Father, I picture the angels looking on going, how, how are you going to do it? How are you going to save sinful people who can no longer come in your presence, whose relationship with you is broken, who will receive judgment? How are you going to take their sin and make them righteous because your love and your justice both? How are you going to wed mercy, love, and justice? It's in Christ. He's the only river that cleanses us. He's the only portion that makes us righteous. Father, I pray for every believer now, every man and woman who put their faith in Jesus Christ alone to save them and receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit and guarantee that there would be an incredible rest on one sense, a rest that they are clothed with the righteous life of Jesus. And in another sense, their hearts would burst forth with love and desire to obey and serve and do the very will and draw close to a heavenly father who would sacrifice so much to redeem us to himself. We just give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.